Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. I pray that you would reign in us. Father, what a wonderful, wonderful corporate way to just to submit to you that you are Lord. And I pray that you would just join with us in a mighty way as we celebrate your presence, expressing our love to you. Lord, that you may be glorified in all that we do and say this morning. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Yeah, I can say amen to that a million times. Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Dustin Saunders. I'm the associate pastor here. I just want to begin this morning by saying that in preaching this sermon, I'm going to be struggling not to go down any rabbit trails. So if you see me kind of going like this, I'm just holding it in. Any awkward pauses, that's what it is. I'm thinking in my head, oh, no, I just need to stay focused. That's like the hardest thing about preaching. Well, I want to start this morning by reading an article to you. And that may sound boring, but let me prep it by saying this. It's satire, so it's funny. It's not a real news story, lest there be any confusion. But the point that the article is trying to make is actually very relevant to our passage of Scripture today, and I think it makes it in a very uh, pointed way. Um, So as I read it, ask yourself this question, why is this article so ridiculous? What makes it so ridiculous? Let me just do a little plug. It's from a website called the Babylon Bee. I know a lot of you know about that website, but it's hilarious. It's like the onion for Christians. It's hilarious. I, I would advise you to check it out, Babylon Bee. But this is the title of the article. The article says, it's very short, by the way, says, What has God ever done for me, asks man breathing air. Okay? Linwood, Washington. Sources confirmed Tuesday that the local free thinker, Jared Olson, called into question the absurd idea that God had ever done anything for him, all while inhaling oxygen and exhaling carbon dioxide in a complex process well beyond his mind's capability of understanding in its entirety. The idea of God is really just holding us back. Olson opined, addressing the other members of the philosophy club at Edmonds Community College, as the membrane across his larynx vibrated to modulate the flow of air from his lungs, making his speech audible to the people listening, whose intricate ear structures then instantly transformed the invisible sound waves into abstract thought into their brain's nervous tissue. Olson went on to pursue the line of reasoning even further, claiming that mankind has science, medicine, and mathematics to thank for its continued existence rather than any sort of all-powerful creator for which there is absolutely no evidence. According to eyewitnesses, he made these claims as those feet rested on a surface that continued to spin around the Earth's core without any input from him, while the only known habitable planet on which he stood rocketed around the center of the galaxy in perfect formation at the unfathomable rate of 490,000 miles per hour. At one point during his expertly crafted speech, Olson reportedly glanced around the room to observe the nods of approval from his peers, his eyes hundreds of millions of cone and rod cells responding to stimuli in an unimaginably sophisticated procedure. As these elaborate structures continued to capture and process an unbelievable volume of input per second, Olson reported that he was all the more confident from the looks of those around him that he had proved his case. According to Olson, he plans to detail religion's negative influence on society at next week's meeting, which is being held in the annex adjacent to both a Christian homeless shelter and Catholic hospital. 
That's the end of the article. You'll see how this connects later in the sermon. But, but the point is, it's ridiculous. It's dramatic irony. And this morning, we are dealing with a very interesting part of Scripture. It's another piece of the history that Mark has written about the gospel of Jesus. And this is what is so interesting about the whole gospel of Mark, but especially the passage that we're looking at today. This is the true story of what happened when Jesus, God in the flesh, came to earth. Now, even if you don't believe that that's true, you have to understand that that's what the writers, and specifically Mark, are claiming. This is the story of what happened when the Son of God became a man and walked among us. We get that. We get it. But that's what makes it so ironic, like the story we just read. Not all of the people who encountered Jesus believed that he was who he said he was. We're going to hear about some people today who are standing in God's temple rejecting God himself. We're going to see a group of people who are so unwilling to acknowledge Jesus' authority that they will reject truth itself. They will cease to search for truth in a desperate attempt to continue living their lives the way they want to. They are unwilling to acknowledge Jesus, and to be able to do this, they will throw truth to the wind. They will embrace foolishness and ignorance rather than come under his authority. So friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to take a moment to invite you this morning to examine the state of your heart. Are you open to hearing about Jesus? Have you closed your heart, wanting instead to cling to your sin? You know, it may be hard to tell. I think it is a lot of times. How about this? Everyone, whether you're a Christian or not, ask yourself this question. Am I willing to embrace the truth no matter what the cost? Let me say it again. Am I willing to embrace the truth no matter what the cost? See, for the people we're looking at today, the answer is no. It's not. They are not. Will you embrace the truth, even if it means you have to change your lifestyle? Will you embrace the truth, even if it means you have to give up your dreams? Will you embrace the truth if you have to give up some of your personality qualities? Friends, we see when we come to Jesus, we must be ready to embrace truth, no matter what the cost. I submit to you this morning, no matter whether you claim to be a Christian or not, if you are unwilling to do this, you're in danger. You're embracing foolishness and ignorance and rejecting truth. Just like Lon said this morning in Sunday school, it's going to go one ear out the other. You are like the atheist who we read about earlier, who uses the very breath that God gives him to utter his rejection against God. It's tragic irony. Let that not be the case for any of you this morning. My plea is this. Would you come to Jesus this morning with an open heart? Would you pray with me? Lord, may you grant that we may engage in contemplating this morning the mysteries of your heavenly wisdom with really increasing devotion to your glory and our edification. Amen. Now, it's extremely important as we look this morning at Mark for us to understand the timeline of what's going on as we look at this week's passage. You may or may not have noticed, but we are now in the final week of Jesus' life in the Gospel of Mark. Passion week, as some call it. And it's fascinating because in these last five chapters of Mark, remember Mark is 16 chapters long, we're in chapter 11 this morning, Mark goes into slow motion. He really zooms in on the last week of Jesus' life. So think about it this way. Jesus' ministry was three years long. The Gospel of Mark has 16 chapters. Chapters 1 through 10 basically cover the first three years of Jesus' ministry. And chapters 11 through 16 cover the last week of Jesus' life. So you have 10 chapters representing three years and five chapters representing one week. 
Obviously, Mark is trying to tell us something. This is a really important part of Jesus' life. In some sense, you could almost say that the first 10 chapters are just prologue to help you understand the last week of Jesus' life and why it's so significant. 25% of the gospel, then, is dedicated to this last week of Jesus' life. So let's keep this in mind as we continue on in Mark. We can't miss the significance of what is about to happen. All the themes that we've been seeing pop up in Mark are coming to a head now in this last week of Jesus' life. All of Mark's gospel has been pointing to this week. Now, when looking at Jesus' last week, it gets a little complicated because the Jewish dating system is different than ours, but I'm going to do my best to kind of fit in some of the events that we know and what days of the week they're going on. Now, again, it might be helpful picture in your mind kind of like a typical calendar week starting on Sunday. So the last week of Jesus' life, let me lay out some different events so we can kind of get an understanding of where we are. Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Donkey. That sounded like Shrek. That was weird. <laughs> donkey. Okay. Um, Jesus rides into, I don't know why I thought of that. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey with all of the fanfare accompanying him. The crowd members shouts, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem with a proper kingly entry. At that point, Mark tells us, Jesus, Mark, the way Mark phrases things is sometimes so funny. Mark tells us Jesus looks around and then just leaves and goes back out. Kind of anticlimactic, right? Um, well, here's the climax. That's Sunday, okay? Monday, the next day, and just to help you understand, the, Jesus and the disciples are staying just outside the city wall. So that's why they keep leaving and walking back. They're within walking distance. So Sunday, he comes in on a donkey. donkey. <laughs> now it's just stuck. Uh, Monday, Jesus comes back to Jerusalem with a vengeance. This is the day that he cleanses the temple, which is kind of a nice way to put it. Jesus enters into the temple courts, sees all of the buying and selling going on, gets angry, and starts to flip tables over. And just on a side note, I was kind of talking with Sarah about this last night. I really want to know what Jesus' demeanor was when he was flipping the tables over. I mean, maybe he was like kind of impassioned and ah, throwing, but I could kind of also see him just kind of like, you know, I, I don't know. Anyway, that's just the way my mind works. But he's flipping tables over on Monday inside the temple courts. Now, the temple courts were huge. It was a huge area, but it was like the center of all Jewish religious life. And here this guy is that from Galilee or Nazareth, they don't know. And he comes in and just starts flipping stuff over and telling people what and what they can't do and what they can do. This is extreme <laughs> radical behavior. And so that's Monday. So as he's leaving is when he curses the fig tree like we heard about. And then he walks back out to where they're staying. So Sunday was the donkey. Monday is the cleansing of the temple. Now Tuesday. Tuesday morning, uh, Jesus and his disciples are walking back to Jerusalem and as they're walking, they see the fig tree that Jesus had cursed the day before, and it's wither. And that's when Jesus gives his lesson on faith and prayer in that deal that we heard about a couple weeks ago. So now it's Tuesday, and we're going into the city, and Jesus is walking straight to the temple. And that's where we're at today. It's Tuesday morning, the last week of Jesus' life. Remember, he's going to be crucified on Friday, so we're only a couple days from his arrest and crucifixion. He knows this, as you'll recall, because he's already predicted three times. He's already told the disciples exactly what's going to happen. He says, look, we're going to go to Jerusalem. The chief priests, the Pharisees, and the scribes, they're going to reject me, they're going to arrest me, and they're going to kill me. Then I'm going to rise again. Remember, he, he said that three times very clearly. Well, now they're in Jerusalem. So we're seeing the fulfillment of everything that Jesus has been saying. This is the plan, and they're in the temple. Now, 
It's a busy Tuesday morning in the temple courts. It's Passover week, so all the Jews from all around have gathered here to uh, do their duties, do the Passover week and the Day of Atonement and all that. And like any good Jew, Jesus is here as well. Now, to understand our passage for today, you have to keep this in mind. The day before, so yesterday, Jesus had cleansed the temple. Now again, this is an extremely radical thing that he did. There's probably still like stuff laying on the ground from the whole event the day before, and yet here Jesus is walking through the temple like nothing happened. I mean, you would think it's kind of like, Jesus, maybe you should lay low for a while, right? But as he's walking through, I'm sure people are kind of like stopping and looking at him like, hey, isn't that the guy that flipped all the stuff over yesterday? Um, wow, you know, and there's probably a tension in the air as they see him. And uh, some of the other gospels actually tells that he was teaching as well. This is just asking for trouble. And so as he's walking with his disciples in the temple courts, he gets approached by a stately group of Jewish leaders. I mean, I can imagine the crowd kind of parting as the Jewish leaders are approaching, right? You can almost hear the music in the background kind of getting more intense as everyone knows there's going to be kind of a showdown here. And so that's where our story comes in. Let's pick up the text here in Mark 11, verses 27 through 33. But for right now, we're going to look at 27 through 28. It says this, And they came again into Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you authority to do them? So that brings us to our first point. The Jewish leaders question and reject Jesus' authority. See, the gauntlet has been thrown down. Words have begun to fly. It's going to be a no-holds-barred war of words. To fully appreciate this battle, we need to dig down into the text to fully understand the significance of what's going on. So look again at verse 27. So where are they? They're in the temple courts. Okay, they're not just on the street. They're in the temple, the center of religious activity. And who approaches Jesus? The chief priests, Mark tells us, the scribes, and the elders. This is a significant group of people. This is a very specific group of people. This group, these three groups, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, are the groups that made up what's called the Sanhedrin, or the Jewish High Council. So these guys are like the most important people in Jewish religion. They were the religious, political, and social authorities in Jewish life. And I think it's kind of hard for us to imagine the, the status these guys held because for us, you know, religious authority, political authority, social authority, those are kind of all usually in separate people. But for Jewish culture, these were all based in these guys right here. It's almost like think of the Pope or something like that where it's this authoritative religious figure. This is not just some like random group of Jewish people, but these are the authorities, the Jewish authorities. These are the guys with the expensive suits. These are the guys that had big expensive robes and funny hats, okay? Um, that's how you know that they're important. And they were extremely powerful. Not only that, but they're in the temple. Now, the temple is their turf. The chief priests were the ones who controlled everything that went on in the temple. Romans weren't even allowed in the temple. That's how much it was their turf, is the Romans agreed, said, okay, we won't even go in there. That's your deal. You guys have full authority over what goes on in the temple. They had authority to kick out the Roman soldiers if they came in the temple. So this is like their turf, and here Jesus comes in a second time to reject their authority, just basically balking at it. They ran the temple, they controlled it, they decided who to let in and who to kick out. Now Jesus is walking around like he owns the place. 
Needless to say, they are very upset and angry with Jesus. Now understand this. Their question, by what authority are you doing these things, is not an honest question. In fact, it's a dishonest question. And here is how I know that. If you've been keeping up in the Gospel of Mark with us, you know that ever since chapter 3, these groups of Jewish leaders have been conspiring to kill him. Since chapter 3, they have been opposing his ministry nearly the whole three years, just biding their time until they could get some type of accusation against him. Just a quick look through some verses, and Mark will make that clear. In chapter 2, verses 6, the Pharisees are there, and they say this, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In chapter 2, verse 16, they say, Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? In chapter 2, verse 24, the Pharisees say, Why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Remember, because Jesus was allowing the disciples to pluck grains. In chapter 3, verse 2, they're already looking for reasons to accuse Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 6, Mark writes this, that they went out and began to plot how they might kill Jesus. In chapter 3, verses 22, they say this about Jesus. He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. They're accusing Jesus of being possessed by Satan. Chapter 7, verse 5, the teachers of the law say this to Jesus. Why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Jesus calls them hypocrites. In chapter 10, verse 2, the Pharisees try to catch Jesus in a trick, saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So you can see that the Jewish leaders have been opposing Jesus this whole time. They're already Jesus' enemies. You can see that Mark's whole gospel has been leading up to this confrontation. Before, they were always confronting Jesus kind of out in the countryside. Now they're confronting him on their home turf. The last week of his life, by the way, these will be the same people who mock Jesus as he's up on the cross. They are way beyond the point of asking honest questions. So my question is, why are they asking Jesus this question then? What are they trying to do? And here's what they're trying to do. They are trying to trap him. They know that he claims to be speaking for God. They need something, though, a public confession of him so that they can accuse him. This is what's so fascinating. That's what Jewish law calls blasphemy, claiming a false authority, claiming to be speaking for God when you don't. Blasphemy in Jewish law is a capital crime. You could be executed for it. Claiming to speak for God when you do not. So if Jesus answers their question straightforwardly, they can arrest him right there on the spot. Or maybe worst case scenario, they're thinking they'll scare him away uh, just with the might of their entourage that they brought. But it's not going to end that well for them, as we'll see. Jesus has something a little different in mind. So how does Jesus respond then? Does he condemn them? What will he say? Well, we'll see in Mark as we look at verse 29 through 30 now. And as we see Jesus respond to the Jewish leaders, just a quick note to help us understand. When Jesus talks about the baptism of John... It's just a shorthand way to say the whole ministry of John. So understand that as we read along. Uh, Look with me at verse 29 through 32, chapter 11. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? For they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So this brings us to our second point. Jesus questions their authority. 
So they come to Jesus to question his authority. Basically to say, you have no authority. They're kind of making a statement by question. Basically saying, you have no right to do what you're doing. But Jesus responds by questioning their authority. It's a simple enough question, right? Okay, guys, let's make a deal. I'll answer your question if you answer my question. It's like a true or false question on an exam, right? Even if they guess, they have a 50% chance of getting it right, which never seems to work out, by the way. You see, they're going to fail even this test. And this is the brilliant thing about this question. Jesus is too clever for them. He knows that they won't answer the question. He immediately, with one question, puts them in the hot seat, puts them on their heels. Now remember, the whole crowd is in the temple. This is in a public place, and they're looking on. And now this peasant from Nazareth is challenging the temple authorities in the temple. In fact, he has just gave them a little lip, kind of. Even in the way he asks his question, he assumes that he has authority over them. But why is this question so brilliant? Because everyone knows that John the Baptist was pointing towards Jesus. Their ministries are inseparably linked. The whole point of John's ministry was to call out the sin among the people and among the priesthood so that they might repent and purify themselves for the Messiah, being Jesus when he comes. You might have noticed that in our passage from Malachi this morning, and I don't have time to go into it, but I would encourage you, if you want to do something that will really help you understand this passage, go back and read Malachi chapter 3 and 4, and God talks about how, what will happen when the Messiah comes to his temple. He'll purify the priesthood. And I would submit to you that's exactly what we're seeing this morning. So John the Baptist says for everyone to repent, the Messiah is coming. So if the Jewish leaders publicly acknowledge that John was a true prophet, then of course they have to answer for two things. Jesus is then going to ask them, well, why did you not accept his ministry if he was a true prophet? Why didn't you repent? And then, why are you not accepting my ministry? You see the trick here. If they accept John's ministry, they have to accept Jesus' ministry. If they accept John, they have to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. If Jesus is the Messiah, then he has authority over them. They can't do that. They will not do that. They won't even consider the possibility. So they quickly realize that they can't say that John's ministry was from heaven or from God. Okay, but what about option two? Remember, there are only two possible answers to Jesus' question. So option two is, well, John's ministry was man-made. It came from man. In other words, he was a fake. Well, it seems for a moment in the way that Mark phrases it, like they might say that. But they realize quickly, wait, 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 wait. All the people that are watching us believe that John really was a true prophet. If we say that, they're going to stone us. We can't say that. And so they realize they can't reject John's ministry either. Because, again, rejecting a true prophet is a capital offense. They could be stoned. So they can't take option two. So option one is out. They can't acknowledge John as a true prophet. Option two is out. They can't say he wasn't a true prophet. So what are they going to do? They're stuck between a rock and a hard place. You see, they had walked in as the big guys on campus in their fancy robes and big hats and all this gold and all this stuff on their own turf in their authority saying, this is our place. What right does he have? And Jesus has them scrambling with one simple question. They have no idea what to do. Uh, This game is all about authority, and they are quickly losing credibility in the eyes of the people. They have to give an answer. But what do they decide to say? How do they decide to escape this question? Let's continue on in verse 33 as they give their answer. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And so we see, third point, the Jewish leaders reject truth out of convenience. See, they say, we don't know. That's the best they can do. 
the religious authorities of all of Israel, Jesus asks them a spiritual question and they say, we don't know. They can't say that John is a prophet and they can't say that he wasn't, so they just decide to give up on the question and pretend like they're ignorant. They're cowards. They're cowards, that's what they are. And they have rejected the truth out of convenience. And because of their answer, Jesus says, then we're done here. If you can't answer the question honestly, then you're not worth my time. By this question, he diagnoses they are not seeking truth. And he says, because of that, I have nothing to do with you. I have no further reason to talk to you. Which is really condescending, by the way. But he has every right to say that to them. And again, at first it almost seems cold or mean of Jesus to refuse an answer. But it's not. And here's why. By choosing to answer, we don't know the Jewish leaders, again, clearly demonstrate that they are not qualified to judge anyone's ministry, much less the ministry of Jesus. They have no standard of truth. If they didn't repent when John came preaching, a mere man, they are for sure not going to repent when Jesus, God in the flesh, comes preaching. Jesus knows this. They're a joke. They're a sham. That they are what the Old Testament describes as blind guides, and God will soon judge them for leading the people astray. A phrase from that chapter in Malachi stands out. It says that the false professors will be judged when the Lord comes to his temple. That's exactly what's going on here. But we learn something about them by looking at this whole interaction. And I wonder if you caught it. They're not concerned about what is true. They're not concerned about what is true. They value their authority and their status more importantly than what is true. Look again at their discussion amongst themselves. Notice what you don't find. You don't see any of them saying, was John really from heaven or was he really from men? They never ask, well, what's the true answer? They're not concerned about that. They're not concerned about what is true. He has exposed their lying hearts and they are without excuse before a holy God. Which brings me to my fourth and final point. Jesus questions our authority. See, this whole exchange is about authority. Who has the right to claim to be speaking for God? Who has the right to claim that authority, the authority of God? Friends, this is what is so incredibly and tragically ironic. Throughout the entire Old Testament, we saw in Malachi a piece of it, God is promising to send his Messiah, his deliverer, to the people of Israel. Thousands of years go by and it all leads up to this. The ministry of Jesus, the deliverer, the Messiah, God in the flesh has finally come to his people. He's finally arrived at his temple. And the whole point of the temple was to worship the Lord. And here he is standing in his temple. And what does he get? Who gave you any authority to do these things here? Oh, the patience of Jesus. The irony. Can we just appreciate how ridiculous this is in hindsight? God returns to his temple and the priests, the very people who are in charge of leading the people in worship of him, reject him. This is even more ridiculous than the atheists we read about earlier. Not only do they reject him, but they question his authority to be there. They question his authority to do the things he's doing. They are fools in the most simple definition of the word, fools. And Jesus will call them that exactly in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, you blind guides, you serpents, you hypocrites, you liars, you fools. They should have accepted him. They should have bowed at his feet and gave up their authority. 
They should have welcomed him with shouts of joy and adoration. Their Lord had finally come. Their Lord has come into his temple. It's everything that they've supposedly been waiting for. But they don't. Why? Why? They would rather hold on to their authority than accept Jesus' authority. They would rather cling to their status and position, all their hopes and dreams, than accept their Lord when he comes into their temple. You see this all throughout the Gospels. Jesus exposes that they weren't there to worship God. They were there to dress in fancy robes and, and look good in front of everyone. So when Lord comes, they reject him. And Jesus tells us that they will be condemned for that. They will not bow the knee to Jesus. They will not give up their autonomy. They will not lay down their authority. This is where it hits home for us, I think, brothers and sisters. I want to sum up this whole passage in one simple sentence. And if you remember nothing else this morning, remember this. To reject Jesus, you must reject truth. And to accept Jesus, you must accept his authority. Let me say that again. To reject Jesus, you must reject truth as well. To accept Jesus, you must accept his authority. Or you could even shorten it, maybe just reject Jesus, reject truth. They go together. Accept Jesus, accept his authority. They go together. Think about it. This is the point of the whole passage. You can't have it all. You can't have both. You can either reject Jesus and say, well, then I can't have truth. I don't care about what's true. Or you can accept Jesus and therefore accept his authority over your life. Now, this passage clearly shows us if you choose to reject truth, you're a fool. That's the scripture's words. Those aren't my words. Uh, Psalm 14 says it this way. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. You would rather live in ignorance than acknowledge Jesus' authority over your life. You would rather be your own authority, supposed authority, than accept the perfect, loving, all-powerful authority of Jesus. And friend, you know this. You don't make a good authority. You don't make a good authority. That is prideful foolishness to hold to your authority. Jesus himself calls the Jewish leaders blind fools for rejecting him. You are no better if you reject God than standing yourself in God's temple questioning God himself. You are here standing in God's universe that he created, being created by God, using the very breath he gives to deny him and reject him. It's just foolishness. There's, there's no other word. And if you're here today, and your heart is hard, and you're rejecting Jesus, and, you're, and you're, you're rejecting God, my plea is this, stop being foolish. It's foolish. And I say this out of love, please turn from your pride and fall at the feet of Jesus, our loving Savior. Cry out to him to soften your heart. Cry out to him to forgive your pride and foolishness. Let go of your rebellion. And God in his grace has provided his son so that you may turn to him and live, have eternal life. Would you do so this morning? Full salvation and forgiveness is offered to you this morning at the feet of Jesus. Will you take it? Because that's the only place it's offered. It's not offered to those who are willing to cling to their own authority, who want to be their own authority. You have to give that up. You have to give that up. It's an illusion. But others of you are here, I think, and you say, well, I accept Jesus and his authority. Jesus, take my life. I will live for your glory alone. You know, and you can tell who these people are because they have a humble spirit. Knowing Jesus is king humbles you. We read that in Philippians 2 this morning. Acknowledging that Jesus is Lord makes you a very humble person because you realize you're not. 
When you approach someone like this about sin in their life, they repent, they apologize, they ask forgiveness. Why? Because they've given up their rights. They have bowed the knee to Jesus and his call on their lives. They live their lives the way that Jesus lovingly commands them to. That is the mark of a Christian. That is the heart of repentance. It's saying, I give up pretending like I know what's best. Jesus, you know what's best. You love me so much, I trust in you and I will walk in that. And when I fail, I'll repent and turn to you. That is the mark of a Christian. If Jesus is king, we're not. Amen. Amen. But lastly, I think others of you are here and and you're kind of trying to live in both these worlds at the same time. Trying to hold on to both options. You're trying to accept Jesus' claim to authority without fully submitting to his authority over your life. And I would ask you, brothers and sisters, would you examine your heart this morning to see if this is you? Check your heart. Are you the kind of person that says, well, I accept Jesus, but I reserve the right to, right? I accept Jesus, but, and we've all heard these types of things, and I want to illustrate for you some examples of what this might look like in your life if this is true. I accept Jesus, but I reserve the right to go and get drunk with my friends when I want, even though I know it's a sin. It's not that big a deal, right? I accept Jesus, but I reserve the right to be a jerk to my wife when no one else is around because she's kind of mean to me sometimes. Doesn't make sense. I accept Jesus, but I reserve the right to only come to church when it's convenient for me. I accept Jesus, but I reserve the right to determine what's right and wrong for myself. Doesn't make sense. I accept Jesus, but I reserve the right to gossip and talk behind other people's backs because, hey, that's what normal women do, right? It's normal. It's not that big a deal. It's a serious thing. We've all been hurt by that. I'm not saying anything about anyone here, I promise, but I've seen people who just pretend like it's not a sin. There's so much truth to that. And it's a great illustration of this. I accept Jesus, but I reserve the right to determine how I use my money. I accept Jesus, but I reserve the right to be rude and sarcastic and make inappropriate jokes because, well, that's just my kind of humor. That's just who I am. I accept Jesus, but I reserve the right to nag my husband consistently because I think he deserves it. I accept Jesus, but I reserve the right to just be a Sunday Christian. I accept Jesus, but I reserve the right to sleep around, have sex, even though I'm not married. Friends, I think you get the point. It's foolishness. If this is you, and I can easily diagnose you from Scripture and from my experience, if if this is you, this is probably what your spiritual life looks like. It might not. And if it does, and it's not you, that's fine too. But your spiritual life is probably dry. You find the Bible boring and maybe you want to kind of read it, but you're not really all that interested in actually reading it. You probably don't experience much joy in your spiritual life. You pray maybe if you need something. Church is kind of a drag, but you kind of come because you feel like you're supposed to. Does that hit home? And please hear me. I don't say any of that to hurt anyone, but to say that these are the symptoms of someone who's holding on to their own rights. It's the symptom of someone who's saying, well, I accept Jesus, but I'm going to hold on to these things. Could it be that these things are true of you because you have not fully surrendered to Jesus? It could be. It could be. And the thing is, is even that is just foolishness. If Jesus is God in the flesh, if God is love, and if God is the one who Psalms tells us sits and has pleasures at his right hand forever and says he delights to give them to us, what are we holding on to? Why are we holding on to these foolish things that we do? 
the God of all joy, sits ready to pour out his blessings on us, yet he can't find room to because we're filling our life with just junk. We've got to just get rid of it. Not because, well, I just have to deny myself, I just have to do this, because it's better. Jesus is better than all those things. Infinitely better. He has infinite joy at his disposal to give to us. We'll surrender to him and seek him. But maybe you're prideful. Maybe you're afraid. I don't know. But this morning, I want to encourage you and exhort you to bring this before Jesus. Be honest with yourself. Don't deal dishonestly with your soul. At the very least, be honest with where you're at. Be honest with where you're at. This type of Christian life, the I accept Jesus but, it's not satisfying anyway. You know that. It doesn't do you any good in the end. Trust me, I I know. So I would just urge you, come to Jesus and trust him with your life. Come to the one who wants to bless you and guide you. You can't hold that tension for very long. You must choose between your rights and Jesus. Would you be done with it today? Whatever you're holding on to, would you let go? Say to God, Lord, I've been holding on to this, but I'm done. Take it. I want you. I want Jesus. This doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but it's all part of the process. Say, Jesus, you have authority over my life. I want to obey you because you know what's best. Would you come to the one who holds all authority in heaven and on earth, yet laid it down to die on your behalf. These are the options that we have before us today, friends. Reject Jesus, reject truth, accept Jesus, accept his authority. The one thing you cannot do is say, I don't know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us, Lord. And Father, it scares me when I read these passages like this because, Lord, I know that I see myself in the attitude of the Pharisees so often who will do anything to cling to their own authority, who will do anything so that they don't have to change their lives, so they don't have to give up anything. They'll even just say, I don't know, just so they do that, Lord. But Father, we know to do that is utter foolishness. And Father, that doesn't make it easy, so please help us this morning, Lord. Father, I pray for all those here, Lord, who may reject you, who have a hard heart, who say, I don't believe that, or I don't know. Father, would you just pour out your grace on them this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit, open their eyes and soften their hearts. Lord, you are powerful enough to do that, and you are good enough to do that. Father, I beg you for that this morning. Open eyes and hearts this morning, God, to see your Son for the first time in all his glory and might and love. And Father, for those of us today who are here as Christians, Lord, would you help us to submit to the authority of your Son? Lord, help us in our American individualism to realize that that is a blessed privilege because he is all good and all loving and desires every good thing for us. Father, would you just soften our hearts and open our eyes to see that truth more and more every day of our lives? Would we just bring our lives into subjection of you? Would you empower us with your Holy Spirit to do that, Lord? We can't do it on our own. It's pointless to sit here and try to just strive and grunt on our own to do that, Lord. Lord, this morning, as those who profess Christ, we give it up to you, saying, Lord, make us yours. Make us yours, completely yours. 
Lord, I pray that there would not be any I accept Jesus but Christians here. Lord, would all just give up the game today and come fully into submission to your will, God. Your good, perfect, and holy will. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.